What's going on, everybody? This is Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics, and this is the Chondrocast, the podcast about green tree pythons and the people that keep them. Enjoy the show. Going. Welcome, everybody. This is episode 20 of the Chondrocast. I'm Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics, and I'm joined with Luke Myers. Luke. Hey. What's going on? What's up, guys? Hi, yo. We are joined today. This is a very important episode to me, at least. We're uh, here with Dr. Daniel Natouche. Mm-hmm. How are you, doctor? I'm doing very well. Thanks, lads. How are you? Tired. Good, drinking a lot dude. of coffee. Yeah, it's... It's early, but uh, yeah, man, we're just—I'm super excited to hear about this paper. I mean, this is awesome, man. Yeah, no, it's pretty exciting. It's been a long time coming, so I'm excited yeah. to share it with you. Well, that's what I was telling Luke. Uh, you know, that's one of the main things I really wanted to talk about was just like how much goes into something like this. Uh, you know, how much time mm-hmm. goes into it, all the just all the work. Because if anyone's read this paper, it's. I mean, to say it's extensive is kind of an understatement, I would think. Uh, mm-hmm. But let's, uh, yeah, so can you give us a little sort of just general background information about yourself? Like what you do, who you uh, who you like represent academically, all that good stuff? Sure. So like most of us, I um, I was that weird kid who used to run around in the bush catching snakes because I was fascinated about them. I uh, think I found my first wild green python at about age 14 in the the rainforests of Cape York Peninsula and spent a lot of time up there just finding them. And at that age, you take it for granted a little bit because it's your backyard and you kind of know they're special, but you know, you're finding fair numbers of them. So, so you don't think too much of it. I am, I'm originally a New Zealander. And I was lucky enough to spend a lot of my holidays in Australia. I moved to Australia at 17 when I left school to pursue the university thing. And at that time, I really just wanted to go to university to get an academic career because I thought that was the best excuse I could have to get back into the bush and start playing with snakes. Yeah. <laughs> and after the first year of, of uni, learning about biology of the cell and doing general maths and boring crap like that I thought this is this is not really me um I want to get back out in the bush and so I came up with this project um to work on green pythons in Australia and so in all of my uni holidays I jumped in the four-wheel drive and packed it up with gear and during the wet season buggered off up into the bush to to catch snakes and I had it had it funded and I applied for funding and got permits and all that sort of thing and did a study on the distribution and population status of different populations of green pythons in northern Australia. Um, and that was that. And so I did that as part of a master's degree. Eventually I got the work credited for a master's degree. So I finished the bachelor's in my uni, uni time, spent all my time in the bush in the holidays. But obviously there is a a large population of green pythons over the the water in New Guinea. 
and they are somewhat different to our Aussie chondros, and that fascinated me. In Australia, you may or may not know, but we, we don't have the red moor. Mm-hmm. And I, despite not enjoying the mathematics and the biology of the cell in my first year biology, as, as university progressed, I became increasingly interested in evolutionary biology and questions like why are those two juvenile morphs different colors? Why does the species change color at a very limited size range from yellow or red into green? And so there are a number of evolutionary hypotheses that suggest why that may be the case. And I, um, I wanted to test those. And so I buggered off to New Guinea on holiday and went around a few places, went to Biak Island. And, uh, and obviously, as many of you guys have noticed, there are enormous differences between animals from that island and throughout New Guinea compared to many other localities and in particular Australia. Um, And so I thought there was something to it. Originally, my interest was in the pure ecology, biology, evolutionary biology, but always keeping in the back of my mind that, you know, there's something going on with these locality types. And you begin to ask questions like, um, you know, is that just related to to simple clinal, what we say, clinal variation, so geographic variation. For example, I can tell you apart, or someone from Sweden, apart from someone from Nigeria. You've got different skin color, right? Right. And so you notice those morphological differences, and in human beings we know it's it's essentially meaningless, um, but in animals often they're under considerable evolutionary or ecological pressure, and that means that their morphology is constrained, which can help give rise to what we call cryptic diversity. So actually your, your genes are a lot more different than what your phenotype or your, your external morphology suggests. And so keeping this in the back of my mind, I um, went all over New Guinea, um, uh, you know, talking with collectors and hunters and going out in the bush and finding snakes myself and and building up all this database. And that, that all started in about 2007. Um, and the rest is somewhat history, I guess. That was my introduction to Conrose, and that was how the interest started. And this project hasn't been funded Um by anyone except me. Uh, we've had a few external donors that have helped and I've had collaborations with people that have had funding. So that was essentially the genesis of the project. Um, more about me broadly, I I run a, a wildlife management consultancy. I, I basically work with snakes and lizards and crocs and things full time. Um, I do a lot of wildlife trade. I work a lot for the CITES Secretariat, um, for IUCN, and I do a lot the European luxury industry. They use a lot of snakes for for handbags and boots and those sorts of things. And so we we work with them to ensure trade is sustainable and that the benefits of trade are equally and equitably dispersed among local people in Indonesia or Malaysia or wherever they're trading. And so that's what I do as a day job. And I learn, learn about and publish about and think about chondros in my spare time. <laughs> yeah. And have, have chondros so always doing... been like one species in particular that you've been drawn to? 
Yeah, I think if, if someone asked me that that classic, almost unanswerable question is, what what is your favourite snake? I think, yeah, the chondro would have to be my favourite snake. I mean, an animal that's born like that, brick red, banana yellow, changes colour, just so distinctive the way they sit in their coil, that dragon-like head, and they're just, they are a stunning animal. And to find to find those animals in the wild is just, you know, there's, there's no greater buzz for me. You oh, know, no it's doubt. on par with like an eight-meter reticulated python in the bush. You know, it's, mm. it's a, every time I do, it's a special, special moment. That's so cool. I think they, they are my favorite snake, and so I'm absolutely drawn to them. Um, I gotta ask: Do you have a, a favorite subspecies now, or is there one in particular you like a lot more than others? Oh God! Um, <laughs> you gotta, gotta ask. Yeah, I suppose I haven't actually thought about it. Um, I think standard old Morelia viridis with the the white vertebral stripe. If you get a full stripe, more they are they're stunning. It also helps that 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 species um, is is much more docile than the three different subspecies of Morelia azuria. Mm-hmm. Um, as you know, biak animals are aggro little shits. Excuse my <laughs> French. Um, and, you know, the things from Sarong and Jayapura, whether it's Pulchu or Utarensis, they are um, pretty aggro too. So it, it helps when you can pick up a snake in the bush and it's kind of nice to you as opposed to trying to tear your face off. And so absolutely in terms of variation and color and so on those morphs of azuria and in particular the biak island subspecies are stunning and the variation is is remarkable they come with the two morphs obviously but but yeah that there's something about a, a bright white stripe on really a veritas that is really really impactful quite stunning and so it, it would remain my favorite species but perhaps of the subspecies i'd have to say biak is a is an extraordinary little little island. Nice. Gotcha. And you had mentioned as far as Biox go, since we're kind of talking about those, that those, if I'm, me and Luke were talking about the paper last night, you know, getting the outline together, and we were talking about, you mentioned in this paper that there's less predatory pressure on the Biox localities, and that's why maybe they're considerably different as far as morphological differences, but it's kind of strange to me because in theory, wouldn't they be the more calm of the other localities if they're under less predatory pressure? Yeah. I, mean, I think, I think it, that comes with an assumption that we have a good understanding of the relationship between predation and aggression in an animal. Um, which I don't think we know an awful lot about. Um, you know, it may not be the diversity of predators that um, corresponds to an aggressive nature. It could just be um, a single predator that that is the cause of that aggression. Or it may be that predator pressure is not linked to aggression at all. It could just be, be a, uh, a genetic bottleneck so that island is oceanic, which means it has not been connected to the New Guinea mainland, nor has Numfor, Sapuri, which is obviously linked to Biak, um, mm-hmm. which means the founder population was inevitably small. It's when, when you think of animals rafting across um, the open ocean, that's yeah. essentially how many of those terrestrial Biak animals got to that um, small archipelago. And 
so it's possible that just a few aggressive animals made their way there and obviously those are the genes that proliferated and those are the genes that are, are manifest now in the in the seemingly somewhat aggressive nature of those animals um getting getting back to the predation side of it when you look at you know there are certain things that are going to put an evolutionary pressure or a selective pressure on something like color and mm-hmm. typically we know it is it is predation um not always but there's a number of hypotheses for how um for how these things come about, but the underlying pressure often is predation. So if we're going to make the assumption that yes, it is uh, predation pressure that 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 is selecting for the different morphs and the the constraint and the rapidness of of the color change and so on, then we can rule out mammalian predators because we know that most mammals, nearly all of them, are colorblind. Um, and so color doesn't matter to an animal that's colorblind. Um, but obviously the birds, and we know that because we know a lot about birds, we know that a lot of raptors have incredibly keen vision and obviously plumage coloration and sexual selection in birds like colorful parrots and paradise is obviously very meaningful, i.e. birds are can see color. And so it makes sense that avian predators are the main selective pressure for these animals and if you look at at least what is known in terms of an inventory of avian predators on on biak versus the mainland it is incredibly depauperate incredibly uh there are much fewer um predators avian predators on biak and so it could be that um taking away one or two specific predators has really loosened that pressure on the species, or it could just be the fact that there are, is a is a there's less diversity of avian predators in general has again loosened um, the selective pressure, which has meant that um, the colour change is you know you look at you look at an animal from from Morelia viridis and they change colour within a week from total yellow basically to total green. Um, it's a little bit slower, I think in in some of the populations of Utaraensis and Pulcher, the the Vogelkop animals and the Northern New Guinea animals, mm-hmm. um, you know, but by by a month here or there. Whereas the Biak animals can take years to fully change from their juvenile coloration through to adulthood, and even then, as you know, many of those adults have mottled coloration, um, you know, all sorts of weird and wacky variations, which which says that color is not as important for those animals as it is for animals in other localities or other spots or, or indeed other subspecies. Mm-hmm. And is that a result? Yeah. I mean, is the habitat on for Biak considerably different from the rest of the other populations on the island? Is it, you know, is it, is there any sort of environmental factors that would, that would play a role in that? I mean, to answer your question, possibly, you know, perhaps my hypothesis is, is absolutely incorrect and there are other, other reasons, uh, thermal constraints or, or something, but um, we don't know. Essentially, to my eye, um, the habitat is very similar on Biak compared to um, the rest of mainland New Guinea and Australia, although obviously there are endemic, being an oceanic island, there are endemic uh, plants, um, rainforest species that occur there. 
So just because my eye thinks it's fairly similar for a discerning eye of a green python or a predator of green python, perhaps it's quite different. So absolutely, there could be environmental factors that are playing a role, but but we just don't know. Okay, gotcha. And I mean, uh, I do not know much about you know birds on New Guinea. Is there a lot of like diversity of raptors there? Is there a lot of predatory birds on New Guinea? I kind of assume yeah, so. There, there, there are. There are. There's a, I don't remember the exact numbers, but I think there are, there's fewer than half as many raptors on BF as there are on mainland New Guinea. Wow. Um, yeah. So it's it's consider, there are considerably fewer raptors on BF than there are on the mainland. And what I thought was really interesting too i mean you know i think biox look you know the most different out of all of them but i mean you said they were actually very close to urinensis right so utaensis yeah i mean genetically 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 they are um which means they have probably only founded biac relatively recently i mean a long time in our lifetimes but in evolutionary terms relatively recently um for example the vogelcock animals which are technically connected via via the bird's head or the, the vogelcock ethnus the, the neck of the bird's, bird's head peninsula they're connected to the populations of utahensis um but yet more distantly related and obviously there's been continuous rings of forest all around new guinea where morelia viridis and morelia zuria have come into contact um, they've presumably been there for a long while, and yet those animals are very, very um, uh, strongly genetically divergent. And the mm-hmm. just sort of suggests that there has been a small founder population, and the colonization of the has occurred relatively recently in evolutionary terms. But because of that small founder population, and possibly because of the um, the, the the reduction in selective pressures on those individuals that colonise the island, they've been able to diverge in terms of their morphology um, much more rapidly than has than have some of the other taxa. Cool. Very cool. So, as far as this recent paper, when did you start? When did when did you? At what point? Like how many years ago, or how many months ago was it that you decided you wanted to? to make this official and what prompted you to look deeper into the potential splitting? I mean, obviously you've spent time out in the field, you've seen, you know, animals from different areas. And so you, you, I'm sure you'd picked up on small variations between all the different groups, but at what point was it that you said, okay, I'm going to look into this further. And and how long exactly did this whole process take you like start to finish? So we just saw the first time I went to New Guinea. So 2009, was when I first started saying, okay, I'm going to collect the data to figure out, so 10 years ago, exactly. Wow. I'm going to collect the data to figure out um, if there is indeed a difference. So I wasn't convinced, like I said, there's variation within species to varying different degrees. So it's impossible to tell if you're not doing the molecular work at the time whether what you're looking at actually adds up to anything meaningful. But I did what I could, which was measuring hell of a lot of animals, collecting all the scale counts, you know, subcaudal scale counts, ventral scale counts, dorsal mid-body counts, 
uh, taking photographs, detailed photographs of the heads of every single specimen I found with all the GPS locality data, et cetera, all across New Guinea. Um, and then beginning also the slow, laborious process of visiting museums all around the world um, because they have uh, voucher specimens, which I'm sure you know about, that have been collected over time mm-hmm. and have been deposited and preserved in alcohol in the collections of those museums. And so over the last decade, I've visited all the major European museums, the major US museums, Australia, Indonesia, France, just basically everywhere, um, to increase the sample size and also to get to some of those localities that are not as well represented in my own sampling. Um, and so that's how we collect the morphological data. Obviously, a lot of tissue was collected as well, and I partnered with uh, Steve Dinellon at the at Adelaide University in the South Australian Museum, who also coordinates the Australian Biological Tissue Collection, and through the samples we collected and a few that they had on stock, we um, we partnered on a project that they were doing with the lemons in uh, their, their name, Emily and Alan Lemon, in Florida using next-generation sequencing. And so, in, in a nutshell, and that happened over, I guess, the last four years or so, um, and the next-gen sequencing is essentially a new development in, in genetic research where we can... Where we can um, where we can look at the genes for a huge number of, of nuclear loci in a way that we couldn't do. Typically, we would look at one gene at a time um, or one loci at a time, like an ND4 gene or, or something or other. But using this next-generation sequencing technique, I think we, get, we, we sequenced up to 400 loci in one hit. So it's mm-hmm. basic. It's not... It's not not as comprehensive, obviously, as you've heard of sequencing the entire genome and yeah. how cool that is, you know. But it's 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 closer to that say than it is than it is um, sequencing a single gene. So it's a really really powerful way to to ask questions about what is actually going on deep in the evolutionary history of these animals. In addition to that, we did sequence the entire mitochondrial genome, and so mm-hmm. typically. In many of the studies you'll read, um, indeed the one, the Rawlings and Dinellon paper that's on green pythons from 2003, just looks at one mitochondrial gene, which is cytochrome B. Um, so in this, we sequence the entire mitochondrial genome plus 400 or so um, nuclear loci. So basically, in terms of um, in terms of representativeness and the power of the genetic analysis, it's given how also um, new next generation sequencing is and how it's become available to scientists at a relatively good cost. It still, I think, costs hundreds of thousands of dollars to do this. Um, it's, you know, basically this study is one of the most extensive and powerful genetic studies of, of any reptile ever. Um, and so the genetic results, uh, you know, we've we have to kind of stand and buy them because they they say a lot basically what exactly what's going on, and then when you add that to, so we know that but essentially that 
that allows us to look at two green snakes that we might look at and say, hey, they're just green snakes. Lives in a forest, eats rat, they're the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. You know, Biak and Sarong, Jaipura, Meraki, they're all the same thing, whatever. But the reality is when you look at the genes, they're very, very different. And that's how you uncover the cryptic diversity. And so essentially what I had assumed, I have the privilege, remember, of seeing thousands and thousands of animals in their natural habitat. And when you do that, I essentially built up a hypothesis in my mind about if things were going to be different species, what they would be. And without blowing my own horn, just the the luck of having seen a lot of animals, essentially what fell out in the genetic analysis is exactly what um, I had assumed would be the case based on the morphology. Mm-hmm. And so we were able to look at all the morphological features of, of the animals, and they do indeed link to those different uh, molecular clades or the subspecies and subspecies um, that we see, for example. And, and, and you guys have seen many of them. You know, mm-hmm. the, the hobby has seen them itself. You know that they actually got damn big heads and weird nostrils. Yeah. And they've got really long tails that are black. And you know that the Morelia viridis has got little short, stubby tails, mm-hmm. and you know a lot of the stuff that you've seen is, is corresponds to actual species and subspecies of, of green python. And so that's all we did. We essentially took it and we used a standard methodology and formalised what you guys kind of knew already. You know, and so much of it hasn't come as a big surprise to the to the hobby community. I, I suspect. Yeah, definitely not. I mean, I. Anyone, and I've I said this at one point, you know, anyone who's kept these animals for an extended period of time and multiples of them, you know, not just one or two, like, you get stuff in, you know, like, this is clearly not the same thing as, as a Beoc or, uh, you know, what have you, but, so I, I definitely think it confirmed everyone's suspicions that's been in, in Condros for an extended period of time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so to, to answer your original question, yeah, this has been a a long, long work in progress, mm-hmm. and um, to synthesize all all that data. Like I said, in terms of you know a lot of species are, are described based on you know, seven specimens and looking at um, you know one one gene, whereas mm-hmm. we've looked at hundreds and hundreds of genes, and I think. You know, 1,500 specimens, 1,500 specimens from throughout PNG, throughout Indonesia, and Maluku, Aru, these places. So, you know, we, we wanted to do a good job. We could have published a long time ago, but I'm not really. I want to make sure that this this stands and and stands for a long time. Right. We wanted to do a really good job, and um, and I think we've done that. I think it will come as a shock to many people. They, you know. <laughs> Some people alert me to various conversations going on on Facebook <laughs> and you see this, oh, that's bullshit, that's not a real thing, or these guys are just trying to name species to get their credibility up. And I, I feel it. I, I totally feel it. I mean, for me, they're just green snakes. The load mm-hmm. of crap. Right. You know, it comes with a bit of a, an annoyance to me because I really don't like splitters, this whole splitting thing yeah. where you turn one thing four different species and it's like, Jesus Christ, that's not. They're not a real thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this case, given how much 
data we've got, we, we just can't. We just can't make any other conclusions. As much as I would love to call them all, all Morelia Veritas, the reality is, you know, that, that powerful, powerful data set speaks for itself and we'd be terrible scientists if we tried to impose our own non-splitter mentality on what is essentially as clear as day. Um, realistically, we should have probably elevated them all to species level, um, mm -hmm. but being inherently conservative and wanting to do a really good job and not knowing exactly where the boundaries right. of Azuria utaraensis and Azuria pulcher, where they meet, um, mm -hmm. we decided to leave that to someone else who can go out there and sample in those very remote areas, and we basically need to find out if, if interbreeding is occurring or not at those zones of contact. Because we don't know that, we were unable to test it because we had no animals from those places, we decided to be conservative and raise them to subspecies. So if someone goes ahead and they they do that work in future, they'll either find out, no, they're not full species, they are interbreeding, in which case they'll be subspecies and they'll stay that way forever, or they'll simply elevate those those subspecies to full species status. Well, that's so the um, important question that I really want to ask, too, is like, at what percentage of deviation is something then okay well like at what what's the threshold for something to be a species or subspecies you know is that is there a standard measure of that as far as science goes or is it just kind of like someone says well this population's 0.5% genetically different than everything else therefore i'm going to call it a species yeah so to answer your question and this this doesn't give any brownie points to science it's it's very subjective we have i don't know how many we've got like 12 different species concepts um, and even within those we can't agree on where to draw the line and so you know and we've also we've also screwed up in many cases because the difference between what are the difference between a human being and a chimpanzee obviously very different things is like one percent right and yet you look at the same genes for green pythons between azuria and uh, viridus and we're looking at up to 11% divergence. So there's 11% difference between two green snakes that look identical, but yet only 1% difference between chimps and human beings. I'm pretty sure we wouldn't want to be lumped in with chimps. I'm pretty sure we're yeah. different. I know a few people very disagree. Maybe not all of us. Exactly. Especially here in the States, because they'll start giving them their own bathroom. <laughs> exactly. And so... Um, and so, you know, precedent has been set for other other species, and, and it's very difficult to go against that now. And then there's other species where there are there is, you know, zero point one percent divergence where they've been called different species. Um, and so it's it's a tricky one. Um, where do you draw the line? Essentially, from what I understand, and I'll be honest, that I'm not a taxonomist. I'm a biologist and field ecologist who's just spend a lot of time looking at a lot of animals and therefore has some sort of idea. I don't wade into the debates about taxonomy. They're, they're, they're boring as far as I'm concerned. They're a bit of a waste of time because they are just subjective. But my colleagues who are, who are more au fait or more interested in these sorts of debates say that general consensus these days is that it's up to 
the authors themselves who propose the species to use their best judgment. Um, and so what we did is we said, screw that, we're just going to base our conclusions on whatever the data are telling us. And so we we um, essentially, based on some, some gut feeling, um, said these data are just too strong to say that these are all the same things, but we're going to be conservative and not raise them to species status because we, we genuinely don't know whether the different subspecies are interbreeding. And so this is how we're, we're going to proceed. Mm-hmm. But by way of example, all of the reviewers who reviewed our paper, who are, we don't know who they are, they're anonymous peer, review, uh, peer reviewers who are experts in this sort of thing, they all, including the editor of the journal, and Molecular Phylogenetics and Evolution is a very high-profile journal, um, they all suggested we raise them to full species status based on the data. But again, oh, wow. just to be conservative, we said, you know, we're going to let someone else do the work because we, you know, it's, it's um, yeah, we, we prefer to be, be conservative. Yeah, well, I'm glad I asked because so, there's just there's a lot of deniers, you know, obviously, like you said, Facebook and stuff like that. And so I think people are under the impression that it's like you just go out into New Guinea for a weekend, take a look at some animals, be like, yep, that's different than the other one. And then you just put that paper out and it's not reviewed by anyone. It's not sort of verified by anyone. You know, they think that it, you're you're like, I think I'm going to make a name for myself and just rename some uh, some chondros. And so I like the big basis of yeah. this episode was for people to realize what all is exactly goes into this kind of thing, uh, you know, that it's not what they think it is, and it's a lot more work than they realize it is, too. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, if you, if you add up all the, the amount of money, it's, it's probably close to a million dollars has gone into this and actual money and in-kind just people's time. Um, like I said, more than a decade, museums around the world Next generation seeing that's you know is unbeatable currently based on all the technology we have available, mm-hmm. all the morphological and so on. Like yeah, so exactly exactly what you're saying is true. You're not going to get a more powerful. I don't know if there is a more powerful um, analysis for any snake species on Earth. This could be the most comprehensive study on any snake species. Forgive me if that is untrue, um, but based on all the the papers I've read that have used similar techniques, it does get more hardcore than this. And that's not blowing our own horn, it's just that's the reality we had. We had a bit of money behind us and we had access to really good people and I worked my buddy ass off with a few others to, to really understand what the heck was going on. Like I said, we could have published a long time ago and still published a, a very defensible paper, but we left it this long because... We wanted to do a good job. It's kind of it's, it's how I like to do things, and and this is how it's how it's come out. And so, you know, if anything, my message would be: don't shoot us. Essentially, we are the messengers. The, the data mm-hmm. speak for itself. And I, and I think, admittedly, because I've you know, I'm not trying to defend scientists or or the taxonomists, there are a lot of crappy taxonomists out there, and a lot of <laughs> crappy scientists that. You know, the, the, the code on zoological nomenclature is not, in my opinion, you've heard of Raymond Hoser, for example. Oh, Bingo. of course. <laughs> yeah, of course. So here's a dude, here's a dude who is actually, really, I've never met the guy, but reading between the lines is, is, is quite a knowledgeable guy. You know, he deserves credit where credit is due, but, but the information that is going into many of the publications, I guess you would call them blog blogs. He writes 
on his if Ray listens to this, forgive me, Ray, I don't I don't necessarily know how your website and publications work. But um, you know, he writes them himself. There's not an awful lot of data and he describes new species and he's typically he's right often because, you know, a lot of us can see differences between animals. It's just that to prove it, you need you should have a certain level of information. Right. And so there are people like that who have published and suggested different species are different species based on very little information. Um, and I think that has given a bad name to uh, taxonomists and, and systematics of reptiles in, uh, in general. And Definitely. so I can understand some of the, the pushback by the, the general public when they read some of the stuff. It's, it's difficult if you don't necessarily know some of the methodologies and what's being said in the paper or, or whether a journal is a good journal or not um, to be able to differentiate what's good science and what's what's not well that's my my position on the whole thing is i can't really question it because i'm not the one out there you know doing like you did going out to new guinea looking at all these things myself i don't have the machines and the funding and the technology to to make this all possible so i can't really say that it you know you're wrong so it just cracks me up when these guys just from behind their keyboard are like, yeah, no, it's bullshit. And then you ask them why, and they're like, I just don't yeah. believe it. That's all. Like, they don't have an I argument. Just, they just they just don't agree with it, which to me yeah, isn't an argument. But it would be, be a boring world if everyone agreed with, with everyone. So it's a bit of fun, right? <laughs> I just don't think they've read it. I mean, that was one of the huge takeaways from me from reading of it was about how big this was. I mean, like you said, 400 look high, around 1,700 base pairs each i mean that's a lot of genes like you know you guys and you said you did like 1600 samples how many of those were field collected that's one thing i was curious about opposed to a museum do you kind of know or uh i could go back and read the paper um i i some of the other papers are written there's more than 900 or a thousand or so specimens that we collected like hard core data for you know every scale mm -hmm. etc if you add wow. to that just all the others i've seen and you know taking some headshots and as a not collected every single piece of information from that specimen then it's it's in the thousands um, wow. but we didn't include some of that in the paper just because we didn't need to because they were you know replicates of the same locality. like i've seen a, a million i've seen a million biag animals through well not a million that's a superlative but I've seen mm -hmm. thousands of BIAC animals, for example, but I didn't collect all of the scale count from the tail or the mid-body for every one of those animals because in the end you're just creating samples for the sake of creating samples. And when you've mm -hmm. already got 500 of them, you don't need to do any more. Um, like I said, most 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 taxonomy papers might have one or two specimens per locality, but we've got 500 of BIAC, you know, it's... We've, we've done a good enough job. So, yeah, if you add up all of those specimens that we've seen, you know, and, and, and just for our own conscience and for our own confidence, you know, visually identified to say, yes, this is this consistent with all the other samples we've taken of these specimens. And, yeah, it's, it's thousands of animals, you know, hundreds in Australia, hundreds in, like around Sarong, all those places. It's, it's a lot of animals, and then you add add all the museum specimens, and yeah, it just becomes even more even more compelling. Mm -hmm. The museum but specimens think, to think, me sound like they would again, I, maybe maybe 
couple of hundred museum specimens. I don't, I don't know exactly. Yeah, the museum specimens a, to me a, seem like they'd be the biggest pain because those are the ones that are probably. I mean, how long have most of those been in museums? You know how how like having to count those up if they've been in alcohol or formaldehyde or whatever for you know an extended period of time. I've I've heard that sometimes museum specimens can be difficult because just they've been in the museum so long that it's tough. Yeah, to, that's that's very true. I mean, they're sitting often. They're sitting in a uh, in a. It's time consuming because they sit in a bottle of alcohol, and obviously a bottle or a jar has a certain size or circumference, and these are quite big snakes if you get a grown adult. And so the thing has been coiled inside the jar, you know, round and round on itself like a spring, and it's obviously gone rock hard. And so when you pull it out, um, the thing still just sits on your desk outside of the jar, but like a spring. And um, yeah, go around and count every scale. I mean, you're right, it's much easier on a live animal, even if it's wriggling in your hands. Um, and then you have the issue that often the animals have been cut down the ventral, you know, through the belly mm-hmm. to inject the formalin and to let the alcohol soak through properly to, for the preservation process. And so you're sitting there painstakingly linking up ventral scales so that you can count them. And yeah, so it takes a while. And you know, the American Museum of Natural History, for example, probably had, you know, in New York, probably had a hundred specimens and i think i was there in 2013 or so and i did that and yeah you need you need a good five days you sit there to do what you could do in a day if they were live animals wow. but then but then again the, the nice thing about that is if people want to people call bullshit on what i've said or done then they can go to the, all those museums and they can count the scales for themselves <laughs> and they can i like that <laughs> replicate again and again or, or verify or test the work that's been done. Unfortunately, with the um, with the wild specimens, they either went back into the bush or they ended up in the pet trade somewhere and <laughs> likely died. And so you can't go back and um, and test those specimens again to verify the work that we've done. You just have to take our word for it, which isn't, isn't quite as scientifically defensible, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. I mean, we obviously are reporting truthfully, but if someone wants to call bullshit, they can, and we don't have any defense when it comes to those those uh, wild specimens. So when you talked about overlap zones between these different subspecies, like how how much overlap were you seeing, or did it kind of vary between groups? Um, well, if you look at the map, um, in the paper, let's bring it up now. Where are we? Um, so, in the, in the, if you've got the map in front of you, and if you're listening, you can have a look at Figure One. It's on page three of the publication. The blue, the blue shaded area is Morelia zuria pulchra. Again, we did, also remember we didn't come up with that name. That's a name that was given by a French guy in eighteen. 90 something so if you don't like the name don't shoot us um <laughs> so you can see there there's a question mark off just off the if you between the yellow and the blue on the north coast just to the below right of yarpian island there's a question mark the closest samples we have are 19 that's nibere the 19 in blue 
And then 13 in yellow, that is the mouth of the Mambrama River. And so those two specimens, when we did the genetic analysis and also looking at the morphology, they fell out into either Utaraensis, which is the yellow, or Pulcher, which is the blue. Now, there's a zone in there where we have no sampling, basically where the question mark is. So that line between the blue and the yellow, that's a line that I threw in there, and it's somewhat arbitrary. It's basically mm -hmm. saying we don't know exactly in that area how right. far the yellow should go towards the Vogelkop or perhaps how far the blue should go towards, um, say, Jayapura or the rest of, rest of northern New Guinea. So it's there that needs to be sampled to figure out if those two subspecies are, are is in, into introgression, whether there's inbreeding. Um, so when I say you need that information before a conservative taxonomist, like myself, would uplist them to full species status, that's the zone of contact where we need to go. Right? And that's, you know, that's, that's a good 300-kilometer area, so it's not a small area. Um, mm. There are other places where, where we know exactly that if we're at a certain site, we're dealing with Morelia viridis, and if we walk 10 kilometers north, we're suddenly dealing with Morelia zuria. So there's lots of sites where they come into contact and there is zero evidence that they're interbreeding. They are completely separate species. They could even be living in the same places. Um, given that they're so close, you know, 10 kilometers, 20 kilometers here or there, suggests that they absolutely are. There's no reason why they wouldn't be living in the same area of forest. But based on the genetics we've got, there's no evidence whatsoever that those species are interbreeding, which just again, absolutely confirms that they are separate species and they're not just making stuff up. Well, I know we see something similar like that with some of the like imitator dart frogs where they inhabit the same basic area but and they, they mimic you know other species, but for whatever reason they're not integrating. Is, there, is that kind yeah. of a similar thing going on with these? Like why wouldn't they be integrating if they're that close to each other? Well, I think they they are they're reproductively isolated for whatever reason, and I, you know, you could obviously force them to do it. You you guys do all the time. You've been right. breeding Azuria <laughs> to Viridus since forever, but I mean, you have a lot of trouble with chondros, and I I knew I know a lot of the breeding farms in in Indonesia, and like a, a guy like Vladimir Odinchenko um, mm. bred more green pythons than probably anyone on earth, and genuinely, I know some of those farms are. Uh, sending out wild animals, but he was breeding genuinely a hell of a lot of animals. And yeah, you have real, real trouble with fertility rates and copulation, hatch rates, all these sorts of things when you start breeding a Zuria or say a Biak to a Meraki. And now that we have the good data to show, yeah, that's because they are massively different species, up to 11% mitochondrial divergence, um, that could very, very well be why. And so when you put these animals in the wild and their natural habitat, but they're not stressed and not being forced to do anything, we also know that, yeah, there's no evidence whatsoever that they're interbreeding. So for whatever reasons, we don't know those reasons, but for whatever they are, they have reproductively isolated themselves, um, which, which might be a lesson for, for, the, for the hobby industry. If you want to produce more fertile eggs, have less breeding issues, start breeding more locality-specific or at least within the subspecies that you that this paper paper reports and you, you, you know it'd be lovely to hear if, if that changes anything because perhaps it would 
Yeah, that I mean that that makes a lot of sense. We see it all the time with guys breeding stuff and females either completely slug out or you know the hatch rate's horrible. You know that that's that could potentially be a very big answer, you know, to that that issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And do you think something similar might be happening with like poultry and uterensis up there, um, where they might be in close proximity, but for whatever reason they're just isolated from each other? That's that's a good question. That's what I, I don't and I can't answer it. I truly don't know. Um, mm-hmm. Again, for me, they're just I'm, I'm an idiot. You know, I'm just, they're just green snakes. Is what <laughs> I think. But clearly, they're not just green snakes. They know something that we don't, and mm-hmm. uh, and so perhaps they are isolated as well. In which case, absolutely, they that means they're full species. Because I, I, if something is living with something else and not interbreeding with it naturally, then you know that that is the is the reproductive species concept or the evolutionary species concept or whatever. Okay, with the different concepts, but you know it's reproductively isolated. They are different species, and they will continue on a trajectory that is not going to overlap. Um, then again, it wouldn't in the other way. It wouldn't surprise me at all if at that zone they are interbreeding. It's just to me they look so similar. But until someone plucks up the courage to go drop themselves in a helicopter down in there and start getting a few specimens out over a over a stretch of 300 kilometers because remember we don't know exactly where the point is and there's no there are no obvious geographic barriers like a big ass mountain range or a mm-hmm. giant river that are that are that's in that area that could be separating them so it's it's kind of anyone's guess as to where the point of contact may be gotcha and uh, as far as the, the subspecies and being in the field and, and finding them, uh, were some sp- subspecies easier to come across than others? Because I know you've talked previously in previous years about, uh, you know, the pet trade and, and export of green trees being really detrimental to, to populations. But then I hear other people that have been over to Papua and they say they see them all the time. You know, it's not anything crazy. So were there some subspecies that were harder to come across than others? You know, do you think... As far as CITES go, are there going to be some subspecies that, you, in your opinion, are going to be like the export needs to basically stop on those compared to others? Yeah, I, I should I should set the record straight. I um I don't think that the pet trade is is hugely detrimental to wild green pythons. Um, well, what our what our paper in two thousand eleven showed was that. That BAC population, which we surveyed it over time and over several years, mm-hmm. showed attributes that, as a wildlife manager, you would expect to see if a population was being overexploited. And that was essentially all we said, and that could be a risk. I think we went on to say that would be a risk that it's unsustainable and that something needs to happen about the, okay. the trade on that one eye of right. BAC. And so, as the play devil's advocate, it could be completely possible that the harvest is sustainable, except that the population is switching to a new level of equilibrium. Or it could be that market forces had changed and collectors had started focusing on juveniles more in the later years as opposed to adults. And that's why we saw the change. Um, So all we did was to say, look, this is happening. It needs to be monitored to ensure that it's not 
an indicator of an unsustainable harvest. Then there are other places like Kopiao, where, yeah, Kopiao has been pretty hampered by by traders for obvious reasons. Cute little yellow snake, right? Mm-hmm. Um, um, I've never I've never had such difficulty finding green pythons as I have on Kopiao, and I've spent a lot of time on that island. Um, but generally, in other places, I agree with the folk that have been. I mean, green pythons, I'll find 15 animals a night in a lot of places. I've got a good, you know, I've been doing it forever since I was a kid, like I said, and I've got a pretty good search image in. I know where they're hanging out and can find them pretty easily. And, and that's the thing. BIAC, despite showing the attributes of, of a possibly, that's the keyword, possibly, I don't know, but possibly unsustainable harvest, I find it very easy to find animals in BIAC. Um, I find it very easy to find animals in Australia. Again, it, you need to be there at the right time, the right. wet season. If you're there in the dry season, it can be much more challenging. Um, I, I, I've had no, apart from Kofiao, I've had no trouble finding green patterns in anywhere in New Guinea or in Australia, like I said, with the exception of Kofiao. Um, I think they are absolutely one of the most common common snakes on the net. And I think scrub pythons, Papua and olives, lyre pythons, obviously bolands, those are all rarer snakes or probably less abundant snakes than the green python. Green pythons are absolutely everywhere. Mm-hmm. And pet trade is very unlikely to ever have a huge impact on those populations. What, what will have an impact is habitat loss. So unfortunately, what's happening in Indonesia more broadly is now beginning to happen in Papua, and that is cutting down rainforest for oil palm. And where I have no evidence so far to suggest that green pythons are able to persist in the oil palm plantations. Perhaps they are. We don't know. Um, but that will have a much more uh, direct and long-lasting effect on green python conservation than the harvest ever will. I suspect the harvest is absolutely sustainable in, in most parts of its range where, where it's occurring. Um, so just that little little disclaimer there. In terms of CITES and so on, all pythons, whether they be all pythons, anything with a anything that's a python is listed in CITES Appendix Two or, or Appendix One. It was a genus wide listing that happened in 1975, um, basically to satisfy lookalike provisions because customs officers were unable to differentiate a green python from a reticulated python, apparently, and so they just decided to list everything together. Um, regardless of whether some of those species were even in trade, let alone subject to detrimental trade. And so all those species will require non-detriment findings. They'll all require CITES permits still. The big plus is that the issue with green pythons and the, why, why, the reason why they're being laundered through Indonesian breeding facilities is because they're protected under Indonesian legislation. And so in Indonesia, you cannot, you cannot harvest from the wild for export, but you can harvest from captive breeding facilities. And so obviously, why the hell would you breed an animal in, the, in captivity, you know, to feed it, to raise it, to get the, the parent stock to, the, you know, you've got to feed them and then you've got to raise the juvenile and so on. It comes at significant cost. Why the hell would you do that when the things are everywhere in the wild? You just go take them to the wild, right? Like any person would. Um, And so it's actually a flaw or a problem with the Indonesian legislation. They should never have 
they never have listed that species as protected in that country when it was so common, one, and could be harvested sustainably, and two, when the population living alongside those animals is so poor that no one's going to not harvest just because a law from Jakarta says what you can or can't do 4,000 kilometres away in Papua. Mm-hmm. And so that's part of the issue. And so I've lobbied hard for years, unsuccessfully, <laughs> for the Indonesian government to remove that species from the protected species list because that would solve the problem. And then, you know, they could make money selling locality-specific chondros, probably for a premium, you know, with a GPS coordinate saying exactly which little leaf on the forest it came from because collecting locality-specific chondros is a bit like stamp collecting for much of the industry. If they did that and if those animals, I mean, I go on Facebook and I'm astounded still at the number of wild-caught specimens I see. I said more than more than half the animals, they're not these designer US captive bred stuff. It's right. all, it's all um, which isn't a problem for me. It's just I know a lot of those animals die. And if people knew that they were receiving a wild animal, then perhaps they would take the steps necessary, like taking it to a veterinarian, getting anti-parasite uh, medication. They would take the steps necessary to keep those animals alive because they don't know that they're wild and they assume it's a, a farm-bred import, then they don't take those steps and the animal dies and they wonder, oh, what's happening? And that's, I suspect, why chondros have got this reputation for being so difficult to keep. They're, they're really not difficult to keep. I don't know where that comes from. Um, I think it's because a lot of people are getting these wild animals and they just don't know it. So that's that point. Secondly, because we now have three new taxa, we have Morelia azuria and it's three subspecies, those species are not listed as protected in Indonesia's national legislation. So what that effectively means is that, yes, they will still require CITES permits to be exported, but they can now legally be exported with a W or wild CITES source code because you know there's no, no legislation preventing it. Right. So I hope that the Indonesian exporters and farmers will start writing wild on their on their permits and start selling wild chondros just like they sell wild lyopython or they sell wild scrub pythons. Mm-hmm. Uh, it'll be completely legal to do so, and perhaps they can charge a premium if they can develop a you know a community-based conservation system where they. Where they, you know, get a locality, they get a, a GPS coordinate for a specific locality and, and that sort of thing. Um, so it may even be in their best interest. My hope is that they don't just continue to say they're captive, because, you know, then the problem the problem doesn't get solved. Hope I hope within the US and other countries, there's an appetite to to get woke and to to know what's going on and to know the truth. And that people are okay with taking wild because it is absolutely acceptable. It's mm-hmm. far better than captive in conservation terms and um, provides farm incentives and livelihood benefits for local people and impoverished communities and centers for habitat protection. I mean, say for example, Kofi, yeah, the green pythons have been a little bit hammered, but people have essentially kept most of the forest on Kofi intact instead of chopping it down because of all the money they make from the snakes. And yeah, the snakes have been a little bit hammered, but isn't that a great story for biodiversity conservation more generally? I mean, all the animals that require that primary forest to persist, 
have all been protected because the habitat was protected or because of that little snake that stays yellow a bit longer than the rest of them. Um, so that's a great conservation success. And here you have an illegal trade that is doing a lot of good for, for conservation. So there's an irony there. Yeah. And if we can replicate that, then we're going to have a lot of success. And so hopefully that that information, and now that we have these taxa, they can be exported as wild, and that's, that's supported from from the U.S. side and the European side side also. Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. That's not something I would have thought about. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Now I was to Yeah, I was told. No, no, that was super cool. Yeah, I, I someone had mentioned to me that I guess at some point you had mentioned you have like a no locality theory. What's what does no locality mean? I don't know. I guess someone had asked me. Like I had talked to some friends, and they had you know if they had any questions to let me know, so I could add it to the outline and. Someone had said something about you having some sort of no locality theory. I don't know if that's a thing or not, but yeah, yeah. But forgive me, I don't really know what that means. Um, I mean, there's uh, I, maybe they're talking about say Meraki. There are there are no green pythons in Meraki, really? and there's not even you know within sort of fifty or a hundred kilometers from there. Um, you know, there's, there's a few. There's a few. To, rivers that have rainforests running down them where the old chondro might hang out. Mm-hmm. But um, essentially, it's, it's like the Australian outback. It's dry Yeah, country. that's what I've heard is it's um, very similar to, to Australia. Like that, that section is very, it's a lot drier. You know, it's not, it's not yeah, like the rest of the island. Absolutely. It really, it's all, it's like, it's gum trees. It's eucalypt and melaleuca scrub. Mm-hmm. It's not rainforest and there's no green pythons there. Um, yet you have a Meraki locality locality type is sold in the States, and that is the export location. A bit like Wamena. Wamena and Wamena animals, there's no green. Um, that's just where the snakes are flowing out of because you can't get out anywhere else unless you walk to drive through 400 k's through the mountains. Um, and, yeah, so you so that the industry has, has, has named specimens of that phenotype or that morphology as, say, a Meraki. Um, so if that's what you're talking about, yeah, I mean, the locality doesn't reflect the where the animal actually comes from. Right. A lot of those Meraki has come from Mindaptana and Waropko and Tanamera, Ziki, places further north, which, you know, if you look at their samples, 18, 16, 24, and 8 on the map I'm looking at, Um mm-hmm but they get transported down the road all the way to Meraki on the coast and then flown out. So if that's what they mean by no locality, then, then that's that's what's happening. And you also mentioned there's no condors on Yapen, right? No, there are absolutely condors on Yapen. Oh. So that, again, if we look at the map, that's sample 28. Mm-hmm. We've got mitochondrial DNA, we've got nuclear DNA, obviously... I mean, I, I found them on the op-end, so if they're not there, it's, I don't know why I found them. <laughs> um, they're also on Maus Num, which is the small little island off the coast. They're on Numfo. Um They're basically on any island. They're on the Podido Islands, which are off the coast of Biak. They're on any, you know, even really small islands they're on. What they're not on are the Kai Islands, um, which are sort of between between Aru and Saram. They're not on Saram either. Um, they're not on New Britain or New Ireland on the Papua New Guinea side. 
but yeah, they're they're certainly certainly on your pink. Got you. Yeah, I think I think I read the paper wrong. So there's no Azuria on Yapen. On is, is on yeah. Yapen is Uterensis. Uh, that's absolutely correct. Yes. Wow, that's pretty cool. Okay, yeah, I misread the paper because I was like, oh, no, that's I think right. I said I no Azuria. Confusion to your defense. The confusion comes from that. You know, Kivert and Wiseman have that book on emerald tree boas and and chondros. Mm-hmm. They have some photos of Yapen animals. And they're biak animals, and you know they've got the big rosettes and the weird color variation. And um, in that book, they're labelled as yarpen, but real yarpens look nothing like that. That's just a confusion through the pet trade. Real yarpens basically look like giant burrs. Okay. And having seen chondros on on both sides of of the the entire island, because I mean every. Everyone that we have in the pet trade is coming from the west side, correct? Yeah, yeah. How do the how do the ones on the west side compare to the ones in the eastern half? I mean, do you see any major differences in in some of the the ones from the populations that we don't have access to? Yeah, the the, the big difference is if you're looking at this map again on page three, figure one, there's a sample there, thirty four. So. That's on the north side of a mountain range called the Owen Stanley Range. Mm-hmm. And from that point 30, there's a point which is labeled 30, that's Normanby Island, all the way up in the north coast, north of the mountain range, you get viridus. So, you know, white vertebral stripe, nice lime green, but really long tails. Really long tails and therefore correspondingly uh, large subcaudal scale count. And now, as I'm sure you know, because you're right up in your green python taxonomy, most of the rest of Viridus have those short, stubby tails like an Aru or a Merauke and correspondingly low subcortal scale counts. And so something weird is going on there. Um, and, and I don't know why. They're just, you know, genetically, they're Viridus. They have more, all the other morphological traits of Viridus, but they have long tails like a Biak or like a, or like a sarong animal. Um, that's the only real difference but by and large I mean even you you go to Manakwari or you go to Sarong not the cities themselves but the general general vicinity or those areas and you find a hundred different chondros they all look really different you know obviously the ones that were yellow juveniles are completely different to the ones that are red juveniles and so in the same way you get all that variation on the puppy side Um, but in general the main the main thing is that, yeah, those animals north of the Owen Stanleys uh, are strange-looking critters, just with the long, with the long tail. Is it black too, or is it just long? It's black too. Cool. That'd be sweet to see. And as far as the ones that have the different colored tails, do you do you have some sort of theory as to why that is? Are they but try you know is there a certain prey item that that varies in that, that- those groups? That would attract Absolutely that, huh? no idea, I'm afraid. I, I really don't know. I suspect it's, it may not have a huge amount of evolutionary significance. Then mm-hmm. again, they do they do lure with the tail, and so perhaps I'm full of crap and it has a lot of significance. I, I just don't know. So essentially, Utaraensis, and it's consistent all the way from, you know, if we're looking at the map again, sample 36 from the Papua New Guinea side right down 
uh, near that little point, but there's a bunch of green dots as well, all the way through the yellow shading to, to Yaopin, um, they have like a white, a light tail, as I'm sure you know. Yeah. Um, whereas everywhere else, including Biak, um, Aru, they've got the, the little black tails or the, or the dark red, reddish tails. Um, and I don't know why, why that would occur. There's also things like, I'm sure you've noticed that Utalaensis and the Biak animals have the three stripes through the eye. Yes. Um, whereas um, Viridus and one of the subspecies of um, Azuria, which is Pulcher, they have a single stripe. So here you have two genetically very different, Viridus and Azuria Pulcher, having similar traits, but yet the two um, other Azuria subspecies, which you'd think would be the same as the Pulcher subspecies, they have a different trait. And so it's, it's, it's challenging to say this is this taxon or this is this subspecies or this species based on a single trait, a single piece of information. It needs to look at a multivariate analysis or, or several different traits to be able to tease apart um, which thing you're looking at. You obviously can do it, but it's, it's more than just looking at the eyes or looking at the tail or looking yeah. at the vertebral stripe and how connected it is, that sort of thing. Yeah, because reading the supplementary material, as soon as I saw the iris banning thing, I was like, oh, here we go. Now everyone's going to be looking at you know the eye of every animal, and if it's seen as you know one or the other, they're going to instantly say, that's this, or this is, you know, that's this other group. Uh, you know, so I, I mean, I'm sure that's only a reliable indicator if it's an imported animal. And the moment, like Luke said last night when we were talking, you know, the moment you breed that to something else, that whole sort of litmus test, quote unquote, is like out the door. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, although I suspect, I don't know how strong the trait is genetically, but I suspect you'll be able to get an idea of, of the general bloodline mm-hmm. of that. You know, if, if it, if you've bred it a number of generations and it's still got a single iris band, then um, chances are it's it's got a fair amount of viridus or pulcher in it and not so much biak or otariensis. And did you, as far as finding specimens in the wild, did you find that banding to be fairly consistent with the different populations? It's 100% consistent, but then again, consider that the sample size is not as great as the cool story I told you about 1,500 animals before mm-hmm. because it only shows up on juveniles. Mm-hmm. Okay, you know I mean? yeah. So you can't, can't see it on a big adult. Right. And then even you have to look really hard to, to see it properly on a red juvenile because the iris is kind of red anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and so really it's, it's a trait that, you, that it's most easy to, to distinguish on a yellow juvenile specimen. Luke, do you have access to the questions David had? Because I didn't write them down. Those were some good ones. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's cool. We kind of just almost asked some, like, just general ecology questions of stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Just just, just to let you know, apologies, I've got another interview on exotic skins, actually, in, at 4.30 in 20 minutes. So let's just okay, get that in mind. Okay, that's perfect, because we're oh, at cool. 110. I try to keep episodes about an hour and a half, and we're at an hour 10. All right, yeah, let me we'll pull rapid up fire David's them. questions. Okay, I think one of them 
just right off the bat while I pull the other ones off is in the hobby, a lot of people now are kind of doing like food cycling where they also, you know, might increase humidity. And the whole idea is, right, you're trying to emulate a natural cycle in nature where there's more food abundance, humidity goes up because it's raining more, and that's getting females to breed. Are you seeing kind of cycles like that in New Guinea where the snakes are all kind of gorging one part of the year and then start breeding? Is is that something that kind of happens during a rainy season? Or? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You see it with movement. You see it with copulation. You see it with feeding. A lot of snakes, even in the tropics, they shut down during dry season. You know, they, they still eat, but most of the most of the feeding happens during the wet. Obviously, humidity is high and temperature is also high. Um, and, you know, they're, they're really slowing down feeding in periods where it's cooler, it's drier, and they're moving around a bit more um, breeding. And so, yeah, I, I, I couldn't give necessarily advice on on times of year or when you switch your mats on or your heat pads or, or whatever you're using. Heat but rocks. It's <laughs> a good one to have as much as you can emulate the natural environment for the bit. And, you, and by the sound of it, what you said, they're getting their population rates mm-hmm. and fertility and that sort of thing. And that doesn't surprise me at all. Um, yeah, David also wanted to know, this is one thing I think a lot of people ask about is, um, you know, he said, how much sun exposure do you think the babies get being at the disturbed areas of the forest? And how much UV or sun exposure do you think the adults potentially get? Because I know he's experimenting with, you know, providing yeah, He UV gets his stuff. UVB a few hours of a day. Mm-hmm. UV. Yeah, I think, I, think, I think that's fundamental. This is gut feeling based on observation. It's not tested. However, between us, I'm doing some experimentation with a friend using captive animals. Um, I think thermoregulation also plays a role in why these species, why these individuals are different colors and why they change different colors and why they why they move into habitats after that change occurs. Um, yeah, juveniles live in that sun-dappled, disturbed habitat and they're, they're getting warmer, probably quicker than, than the average adult. Um, they're also, remember, feeding on heliothermic or ectothermic animals like skinks, which are also going to hang out in those areas where, um, where there's a lot more light because they need that, that heat mm-hmm. removed. And it can be relatively cool under the closed canopy of the rainforest, especially on a rainy day in the shade where it's a bit dark and damp. Um, I think the advantage the green animals have is that they're bigger and that they can move to the top of the canopy and sit in in the daylight at the top of a tree. Just small little wow. juvenile just may not have the the size to be able to get up what can be quite imposing thick thick trunked trees. Um, and so absolutely, and and all this stuff about it's it's completely true. Wild animals have so much white on them and. And, you know, all over the body, not just on the vertebral stripe, they're stunning, whereas you, you completely lose that mm-hmm. in specimens. And um, and it could very well have something to do with, with UV. I mean, it'd be so simple to test if you had a number of animals and you set up a, a proper experimental treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I'm, you know, I always hear this person's doing that, but it's not set up in a way that's going to give them any defensible results. But, yeah, I mean... Can only come with advantages because because we know those animals are doing that in the wild. In terms of how much time, 
you should be giving them UV exposure at what sort of level. I, I can't uh, speak to that because I don't know. Um, but, you know, certainly they, they need some of it because that's what they're, what they're doing normally. And that's also speeding up a lot of metabolic processes and, and a variety of things. Nice. Awesome. And um, you also wanted to know, does he have any data on predation success of adult GTPs and how often they're actually capturing a mean? So, you know, like how much do you think an adult is probably eating in a year? You know, I think in captivity, right, we're always concerned about overfeeding. So, you know, how big are maybe some of the different subspecies? And stuff like that. And how many individuals are you yeah. finding with birds in them? Because I'm tired of people saying that they they eat birds a lot. Because from everything I've read, birds are a very small part of their diet. Yeah, you you clearly read more than other people. Um, they, I have <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of animals and gut contents. I found three three or four birds in mm. all of that. And that's next to hundreds of rats and bandicoots, and obviously all the juveniles are eating lizards. Um, you know, the thing is, that someone will see a photograph of a green python eating a parrot and go, "Oh, they love birds." Obviously, they'll eat whatever they can get. They're right. pretty generalist in their diet. David Wilson, you know, that is, he got them video of them snapping at striking at moths. You know, they're, they're pretty stupid animals, really. They <laughs> are incredibly dumb. <laughs> Yeah, they'll have a go at whatever they can, and they often they often you know they bite off more than they can chew. I've seen condors that have died in the wild because they've grabbed onto an animal and they've been able to kill it, and then the animals killed them as they've like to swallow it. And I I did my PhD on scrub pine at this team. They they do the same thing. They will smash a wallaby and they'll kill it easily, and the wallaby is like twenty kilograms and the snake's five kilograms. And the snake gets it halfway down and then just dies with a lot of his leg punches through its gut, which is too big. And so oh I think God. I think life out there in the bush is a lot harder than than we think it is. And these animals are they'll take any meal they get. I don't think they eat nearly as regularly as well, certainly not as you guys are feeding them in captivity. That's a just a true fact. Um, mm-hmm. But it wouldn't surprise me if a condor you know ate a meal only five times a year. Um, wow. um, obviously, some individuals are eating, eating more than that. But again, I've watched them in the bush, and you know, radio tracking data shows this. They'll go up and sit at sort of maybe two meters um, on a little vine, and then at night they come down and they'll sit there the whole night, and then daytime they'll head back up and sit in the same spot in the vine, and then at night they'll come down sit in the same spot, then at night they go back up, sit in the same spot, and the same night they come down and sit in the same spot. And they just, they do that for a week, and then they'll move two metres away and do the exact same thing on a different vine in a different spot every night, every day, for another week. Until they, until they get something. So they're, they're really sedentary, mm-hmm. and they're not moving a hell of a lot. Um yeah, it's it's every animal will be different. Obviously, you have those animals that are really good hunters, um, those animals that are not, those animals that have problems of movement, a parasite infection, whatever it is. But if I was to average it out, just based on what we know from other snakes, because we don't know exactly for green pythons, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, ten, ten meals a year 
is mm-hmm. probably is probably an average with with long periods. You know, maybe they get one a week mm-hmm. uh, during some periods, but then they go three months without a meal at other times. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if, if if I was keeping green pythons myself and I was feeding them a, a healthy regime, I'd feed them a reasonably. The, the other difficulty is. The animals in your enclosures are undoubtedly stressed, even if they're captive bred um, multiple generation, because the reality is we just cannot emulate a comfortable environment for them in a box in right. Maryland. It's freaking snowing yeah. outside. You know, I'm walking just, by the cage every day, freaking out. Yeah, and that's not that's not putting down the industry. And no one, mm-hmm. no, I, can, I couldn't do a better job than just... We don't know exactly what these animals want, so they're inherently stressed. That comes with issues like constipation and, you know, prolapse. All this stuff is related to, to a captive environment. And so, if if we were talking, I've seen chondros eat massive meals that you guys would say I wouldn't even feed my animals something half that size. But I understand that your concern because feeding an animal in captivity that is stressed and is not living in optimal conditions and has these associated medical conditions because of it, um, if you go and try and feed it a big bandicoot or a rat, um, it could very, really, you know, very easily kill itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so what I would love to say is I'd feed a pretty big rat once a month. If I was, if I was, um, if I was, uh, breeding the snakes myself or keeping them myself, but given that you're feeding smaller prey, probably a slightly smaller item once every three weeks or two weeks would be would be sufficient. And how often, if you were yeah, feeding were, neonates, how often would you be feeding those? Uh, so same same sort of frequency. same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and and just out of out of curiosity, I mean, how long do you think? You know, if they're eating that little, how long? I mean, how long do you think it maybe takes like a female to get to like a, a breeding size? Do you have any clue on that, or I mean, it might be pretty hard to tell. But I, I think it's about two to three years in the wild. Wow, yeah. that's way younger than what yeah, we, we wait till they're five yeah. out of here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you guys, you know, what's the, you, you don't breed them until they're over a thousand grams or one no. kilogram or something. Some people so, do. Some people like to think that they should be five thousand grams before you breed them, which is ridiculous. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, yeah. the vast, the must, the vast majority of wild snakes, the biggest individuals in a population, will never reach that size anyway. I think of, of thousands and thousands of snakes I've found. Maybe five have been larger than one kilogram, than a thousand grams, and so yeah, most most of them are starting to breed around two hundred, three hundred, four hundred grams. Um, wow, they're just they're just a different animal, and most of them are dying before they you know a, a half a kilogram, five hundred gram. Um, forgive me for not speaking pounds, but um, no, no, um, the the yeah, most animals are dying. In the wild before they reach 500 grams, but they've had multiple reproductive events. Wow. Um, ma- males, we know that males reach sexual maturity at about a year and a half mm-hmm. um, based on sperm, based on dissections of, of, of wild animals and sperm and the, the vast difference of the efferent ducks. 
Mm -hmm. Uh, Females, it's a little bit challenging to tell because the things we look for are more associated with prior reproductive events than actual physiological Uh, maturity. Production of eggs. But, yeah, I mean, obviously it depends on food. You could have an animal that's only eating, like I said, five times a year, and it might take four or five years to reach maturity, in which case it's probably going to, you know, could die before it reaches um, or reproduces. And then you get the other that has 20 meals a year and that rapidly reaches maturity in, in two years. Um, so food is, is really the determinant, um, which means, you know, it's very difficult with snakes in general to base anything off, off age. Because, you can, as you know, you can have siblings born at the same time, kept in the same conditions. One's given a lot of food, the other's not. And one's, you know, take a reticulated pipe and one can be one meter long where the other is three meters long after the mm-hmm. same period of time. And so, you know, food is the real, the real test. Yeah, no, that, I mean, that's super interesting because, I mean, I have some females myself that, you know, I try to feel a little lighter once every two or three weeks. And, you know, they're three years old and, you know, maybe like, 250 grams and i think most people nowadays would be like oh my god that's so tiny but what are you you've doing? seen yeah. females right and you've had you think females are breeding even at that size at 250 grams or laying clutches um i could open a data sheet i don't actually have a data sheet on my laptop oh here, yeah that's all good uh, yeah yeah absolutely and even um, at that size those clutches you know, are going to be tiny on, on average on average, closer to three, four. Um, four. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but in terms yeah. of length, you're looking snout to vent length. This is going back. This is trying to get into the memory banks a little bit. But I think about a hundred and twelve centimeters from the tip of the snout to the anus, snout to vent length is the smallest mature female. And if you think they're reaching about sixty to seventy centimeters after one year and then growth starts to increase growth rates so you look you're looking two to three years between two to three years depending on the season remember that seasons don't breeding mm-hmm. seasons don't wait because it's not an a season of reproduction it's a seasonal reproductive cycle mm-hmm. those seasons aren't necessarily in line with um with uh you know, to, at the same point at which the animal was, was given birth or calendar years of age. And so perhaps animals reach physiological maturity in a, in a certain year, but then need to wait all the way to the next season before, you know, humidity reduces and the conditions are right for reproduction, in which, in which time they're eating anyway. So physical maturity, physiological maturity and actual reproduction, giving, you know, hatching a mm-hmm. uh, eggs can be two slightly different things but i'd say yeah two two to three years with the slow growers you know three to four years which is typical which is typical for a lot of tropical snakes Mm -hmm. a lot of a lot of pythons a lot of related pythons you know retics birds all this stuff similar sizes Mm -hmm. similar lengths of time awesome oh i I don't know Luke, did you have anything else? Because I think that's, I think I we covered everything I think, that I that I could think of. I, yeah, yeah, I think we did. I mean, I think it was awesome. You know, it was so cool talking to you. 
yeah. thinking about getting my master's to just so to hear all this stuff is just is really awesome so thanks so much for coming on oh, that's a real pleasure, guys. It's lovely to speak to you too. You should do your masters going into those uh, zones of contact and seeing what you can find. That'll be fun. <laughs> oh, right. Maybe I will. I gotta. I should definitely <laughs> try that. I actually, uh, I graduate in June, and I'm planning to. I want to. I have some friends in Australia, and part of my plan is to actually. I need to go see one in the wild. So, hopefully, uh, sometime next year, that'll be a thing. Yeah, wonderful. See, see if you can time it during the. Uh, Australian summer because that's the wet season and you'll you'll massively increase your chances of seeing something. Oh, cool. Yeah, I, I, have, I will need to plan that all out. I have one more question. Is Papua New Guinea as shady and sketchy as everyone says it is? Yeah, it's pretty bad. I, I have no <laughs> idea how we spent, spent a year and a half there. And it, it, I mean, we, we saw people gun down the street. We saw like, you know, the military just shoot protesters. We the number of roadblocks we were stopped at, guys with machetes just wanting this and that. And I speak Indonesian and, you know, fairly streetwise, gifted a gab. But even then, we were asking for it. I'm, I'm a dad now, 30 something. Looking back, and I'm like, wow, we were really freaking stupid. Um, but, you know, we got a cool paper out of it. So, yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> worth it. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's, sorry, to, 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 to your point, the Indonesian side is, I would, I wouldn't hesitate to say go visit. Um, you know, if you want to be Sarong, Manakwari, the main centres and around them, you're you're pretty damn safe on the Indonesian mm -hmm. side. Um, don't you know, Papua New Guinea? It's so expensive to stay safe that mm -hmm. it kind of makes a non-fun holiday. We spent far more time in Irian Jaya or West Papua, the Indonesian side, than in PNG, just because we're for students, we paid for all of that travel ourselves, and we didn't have enough money to keep ourselves safe. We were just basically sleeping in tents in the bush, going around on a motorbike, cheap motorbike we bought, just driving off into the mountains and stuff. And so, nice. you, know, you wouldn't want to do that in in Papua New Guinea, but certainly in in area West Papua. And I mean, you know, a lot of people, Mark Spataro and Ari, and these people that have gone there, and you know, it's pretty, it's pretty sweet. Um, it's just if you get right off the big track, like we did, then you start to have a few of those, you know, small scary moments. But if you're staying around the main centres and herping outside, you know, somewhere on Biak Island or or wherever, then you've you got to be pretty unlucky to, to fall afoul of anything. Good to know. And that, Justin, we've got to go to Biak. Got to find yeah, some. man. I'll get my uh, I'll get my banana hammock ready and my speedo. <laughs> the beaches. Yeah, man. Run high up. Uh, I've got this other call coming in, guys, just now. It's been absolutely lovely to speak oh, to you. Cool. Yeah, thank you. The, we really appreciate it. Yeah. So, yeah. Thank you. Have a nice day, man. Cool. Cheers. See you guys. Later. That was a good one, dude. Dude, yeah, I that just was, want to say thank you. I was Justin, super worried about up. this one because I was like, dude, I'm so gonna screw this up. Like, this is gonna be horrible. It went way better than I thought it would. I'm not gonna lie. I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sound like a no, idiot this whole time. Like, dude, we have barely dude. had to say. I mean, I thought that was so cool. I mean, perfect. I don't know, that was awesome. But yeah, dude, come on, let's go. We'll rent some jet we'll skis. Do it. You could just. We'll get Brahms. Go over to get Brahms, just ride jet skis right over to Indonesia. Get Biak real quick. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, that was that was such an awesome episode. And I mean, 
like I, again, like I was gonna say, like you know, we I was gonna st- ask. We are still recording said. too, just so you know. Oh, okay, yeah. okay. So don't drop any. <laughs> no, I mean, do say whatever you but, want. I'm just letting you know we're we're still on. <laughs> cool, but dude, oh man, yeah. I mean, just the part where he said, I mean, no one's done that large of a genetic study in yeah. general with snakes. I mean, in the paper it said New Guinea, but I don't know. I think that's flat earthers cool. and anti vaxxers be damned. Right. <laughs> Anyone but yeah, who has I mean, anything that to was say. awesome. Yeah, that was great. I mean, this is, I need a, to put this some is easily the, my snakes now. the most uh, substantial episode that I've done for this so far, easily. So. Oh, dude. I, I, well, like, yeah, there's man, a lot, I mean, of, <laughs> lot of information in this that people will find useful, whether they believe it or not. You know, it's. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. glad that he talked about the, the export thing because I think a lot of people kind of I don't want to say villainize, but they've, you know, there's been some people that have been critical of him for his opinion on the whole pet trade thing. So I'm glad that he cleared that up. Uh, you know, it's just, there's, I, we got a lot of yeah, good no, information I mean, out of that. I even, I've had those thoughts where I'm like, man, like, what are we doing? You know, are we just depleting these wild populations? But I think, I mean, he's 100% right. I had to do a, a weird present, presentation on alligator farming last week. And, they pretty much just take a bunch of alligators out of Louisiana for the skin trade. Yep. But like he said, it was the same exact situation where if you're dependent on these wild populations for money, people end up protecting them more than they ever right, would. Right. For just say, now just they're protecting their agriculture. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it was the same exact situation where now all these people are dependent on these wild alligators and they've done like populations are stable and they're, mm-hmm. you know, the people collecting them are into conservation. So, it does, like you said, that was so awesome. I was like, well, I oh, think, okay, yeah. maybe I will get a few more beyond and part and stuff of that, like that. Uh, you know, part of that was I think New York Times or some big magazine uh, publication or newspaper or something did an article that they had talked to him and they made it sound like you know the the pet trade was bleeding green tribe, you know, the, the population's dry. And of course, being the the media, I'm sure they they really sort of embellished it a little bit and and made it seem like it was worse than it really was. But uh, yeah, I'm glad to hear that, that you know that's not the case because I've heard, like I said when I was asking him about it, you know, I've heard so many conflicting things where people saying, you know, we never saw any green trees when we were there, and then you have people saying like, dude, we were like practically wading through them, you know, going through the woods, you know. Uh, and so it's nice to get some clarity on that from someone who's actually been there more than once and, and you know, spent considerable time there. So glad, yeah, we, glad awesome. we got to unpack and, uh, everything. Yeah, and even just the idea now that, okay, so you can label these since they're not under, you know, Indonesian law as a new species. Yeah, yeah. You can label these as wild caught. I was like, that's fucking genius. Like, awesome. You yep, know what loophole. I mean? Like, that's actually really, like, useful. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's awesome. And like you said, if you're not misrepresenting them, like, I think there are definitely people who should be getting wild animals for new blood, mm-hmm. you know? So I don't know. Well, that's, I mean, I that's why Jake, cool. you know, Jake with his, with his carpets, the pop ones, you know, him and Billy, they load up on wild caught animals, you know, or farmed, whatever you want to call it anytime they can. Cause you know, we, it's been said before, you know, we have no idea when this, when they're going to close off everything and we may not have access to this stuff anymore. So I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm also of the opinion if they ended up closing export for green trees or anything from there, you know, I, it's not really going to hurt me that much because I think there's enough people breeding green trees now, uh, and that number's only growing for, you know, that to be not an issue. 
You know, they they'll probably jump in price short term until things kind of level mm-hmm. out. But I don't know. It would it wouldn't hurt my feelings necessarily, but I get it. Yeah, no, we've we've had our shot. So I mean, if the carpet <laughs> guys have made it work, all the Australian guys, you know, yeah. we've definitely had our chance. And definitely, we can't make it work. It's kind of our own fault by now. <laughs> it's only, it's only getting better and it's only um, getting easier from here, though, as far as breeding and keeping and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's all oh man, dude. So yeah, dude, we gotta go. Definitely. Wow, me and you, David. We'll figure it out. As long Next as I don't, year. as long as I don't get like skinned alive by tribesmen or anything like that. As long as you don't get what skinned Outside alive by tribesmen. Come on, that's part of the experience. I don't, Gotta look I don't it up. think so. I've, I've you ever seen Green Inferno? I feel like that's that's a real <laughs> thing. That movie's brutal, dude. You should go watch it. It's so messed brutal. up. It's really messed up. All right. Anyways, check it out. Maybe this weekend. Yeah, man. Yeah, no, it'll work out perfectly too. I got class right now, so like the early morning thing, I'm not even gonna miss any class. This is perfect. Nice. So Yeah, I definitely should head out. But yeah, again, I gotta dude, go to work. Thank so. you so much for even setting this up. Hell yeah, that was dude. so awesome. I'm glad it happened. And yeah, yeah, dude, me too. That was super cool to get to talk to him. I mean, I literally I have a binder with all his papers <laughs> that I've printed out where I've like read them and wrote what a notes nerd. on them. What a goddamn nerd, right? So like, freak. oh my god, so cool. So thank you so much. I'm gonna head to class. And, All right, uh, man. Yeah, dude. I'll talk to you later. Later. All right, that was episode twenty. Thanks to Luke and Dr. Daniel Latouche for coming on. Uh, please subscribe via SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify. Follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at the Condrocast. Uh, thanks to David Brahms, Specialty Enclosure Designs. He's the one who sponsors the show. His products are awesome. SpecialtyEnclosureDesigns.com. Check him out. And see you all next episode. Thanks. Thanks.